Today we unpack together John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13, so if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go there. Uh, but this passage really presents to us a choice, and there's only two choices, to either pursue the light or to pursue the darkness, to either pursue Christ or everything and anything else. And in this passage, it really divides into two main sections. We will see something that merely glows in the dark, and then we will see something that radiates to the dark in verses 9 through 13. So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, uh, I encourage you to go once again to John chapter 1. I will be reading from the New American Standard Bible version, and I will begin with the context of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was Zoe, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. Verse 6, And then there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. However, he was not the light, but came to testify about the light. And there was the true light, which coming to the world enlightens every man. Notice that phrase. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. Thank you. Deep down inside of you, down in your bones, so to speak, deep down, what are you pursuing? You know, there are really only two choices. Either we are pursuing the light or we are pursuing darkness. Either we are pursuing Christ or we are pursuing idols. We each pursue something. And if we are really transparent, if we really dig down deep, many of us pursue idols. I want you to go back to your childhood real quick. Think back to your childhood dreams and if you think about it, most of us had some kind of childhood idol, somebody we looked up to, somebody we tried to be like. Who was your idol, so to speak, growing up? I believe I've discussed this before, but for every young boy dr growing up in the 1990s, our idol was Michael Jordan. We all wanted to be like Mike, and as a... Uh, Anyways, uh, non-athletic kid, I'll say it that way, uh, I was not very uh, athletic, but I bought that dream hook, line, and sinker, so I bought everything Chicago Bulls, I remember, I had a Chicago Bulls basketball, I had a Chicago Bulls jersey, I even had the Chicago Bulls plastic hoop that was on top of my door, if anybody recognizes it, so I would practice dunking. And I remember, uh, even as a kid, I would play basketball and I would purposely stick out my tongue just to be like him. It was weird. Okay. Um, but we all, 
tend to have idols as children. And it seems innocent, but unfortunately for many of us, this habit continues into adulthood. Deep down, if we are really willing to look inside of ourselves, we will each have idols that we pursue. And what do I mean by an idol? An idol, defined by the dictionary, is an image or representation of a god used as an object of worship. That's a pretty good uh, worldly understanding of an idol, but I'm going to take it a step further. An idol is anything in our lives that we deem as more important than God. An idol is anything more important than God. An idol is anything that we place on the throne of our lives other than God. But idols, objects of worship, are not just out there in the world. They're not just found in uh, athletes or billionaires or actresses or actors. No, idols are unfortunately not just out there in the world, but they can also be found inside of churches themselves. Churches are full of idols, full of things that we elevate, that we pursue. Idols can be personalities that are bigger than life, buildings that we put together with our bare hands, programs that serve our kids, or idols can even become the people that we love inside the church. Oftentimes, we come to church for those things, but not for the real reason we should be here. We should come to church, not for the building, not for the programs, not even for the people We should come not to just hear a pretty sermon or for certain personalities, but when we return to this building, hopefully next week, when we come to here, we should worship a person. We worship together. We fellowship together. We discover together. We glorify together God, and we worship Him solely. Everything we should do in this building, in our lives, should be to glorify Him as supreme. But unfortunately, if idols are in here inside the church, then we oftentimes carry our idols home with us. But many of us do not have idols that we place on our mantle. We do not have graven images. If you have one of those that you bow down to, please come talk to me. I'll yeah, be really, yeah, bad. Um, but oftentimes, it can be even worse because our idols are often invisible. We often elevate money to the point of becoming an idol, thinking just a little bit more will satisfy. But let us not pursue the darkness, but rather the light. We elevate power to the position of an idol, earning a promotion just to feel a sense of accomplishment. But let us not not pursue darkness, but let us pursue the light. We can even take good things that God has blessed us with and then elevate them to the point that they are on the throne of our lives. For example, our families, or even ourselves. Oftentimes what we want presides over all, over presides even over what God wants from our lives. Let us not pursue darkness, but let us rather pursue the light. What are you pursuing? You're pursuing something. You're either pursuing Christ or anything else. Today we really answer that question in John chapter 1 verses 6 through 13 and today we hopefully will look inside of our souls to see if we're truly pursuing the true light or if we are pursuing something that merely glows in the dark. 
From a bird's eye perspective, if you were to look at John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13, you would see that it breaks down into two main sections. Verses 6 through 8 describe something that we should not elevate, that we should not pursue, and then also verses 9 through 13 then discuss something that we should pursue, which is the true light. With this in mind, if you have your Bible, once again, turn to John chapter 1. To very quickly set the stage for our discussion, if you were here last week, then you re- may remember the uh, the depth and the beauty and the magnificence in the theology of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If I could just put it lightly, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 is truth. And those five verses really answer one central question. It answers the question, who is Jesus? And who is Jesus? According to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, Jesus is six things. Jesus is pre-existent, not created. In the beginning was the Word. Number two, Jesus was in the presence of God and the Word was with God. Jesus is a separate person of God, yet he is of one essence with God. And then number three, Jesus is fully God and the Word was God. But number four, Jesus is also creator. John chapter 1 verse 3. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. And what I mentioned last week is only a creator can fully repair his creation. Number five, Jesus is life. Verse four, in him, not out there, not in the world, but in him, in Jesus Christ, and in him alone was life. But that life is not a bios life, that's just a physical life. What we mean by life is a spiritual life. That word is zoe, it means aliveness. In him was aliveness, and the life was the light of men. And number six, Jesus is light, he is truth, he is hope. And he is the opposite of sin and darkness. But then if you notice, something kind of random happens in John chapter 1. At at the end of verse 5, all of a sudden, the text kind of slams on its brakes and completely changes subjects. Verses 1 through 5 describe Jesus and who he is. And then all of a sudden, in verses 6 through 8, it describes somebody else entirely. Why? Why does John the author... All of a sudden, in verse 6, describe John the Baptist. Notice the pivot with me, if you will. Verse 5. The light, Jesus, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 6. But there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so all might believe through him. However, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, before we get too far in, I want you to notice the change. I want you to notice the change in verbs. Notice in verse 1, what does it say? In the beginning was. And then in verse 6, it says, there came a man. Wait, there came a man. So in verse 1, it's was. And then in verse 6, is came. The question is why. I believe that John, the author, is now in verse 6. Verse 6, he is stepping down into the realm of time. Verse 1, it talks about Christ as pre-existent, before time itself he existed, and now John the author steps down into time to describe John the Baptist. Why? I think part of it is to limit John the Baptist as something separate, that he was just a mere human, he is different than Jesus. 
He is just a man not worthy to be worshipped or elevated. But then notice John the Baptist's purpose. Why did God send John the Baptist? Verse 7, verse 6. There came a man sent from John. We're down into the realm of time now. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. Notice that, uh, what do they call it? Um, preposition. Instead of, it says that so that they may not believe in him. It doesn't say that, but they might believe through him. Verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, if you notice here, John's identity matches his purpose. What is John's identity? John is merely a witness for the purpose to testify about the truth of the light. That's what it says. The Greek word here for to testify, or excuse me, is for witness, is martyria. That's where we get the English word martyr. John came as a martyria, as a witness for the purpose to testify about the light. Let's put it all in one sentence. John the Baptist came to confirm who Jesus was. John the Baptist's purpose is similar to a witness in the court of law today. Recently I watched a documentary on O.J. Simpson and his trial I'm not going there. I'm not talking about innocence or guilty. But um, in that trial, there were 126 witnesses. Now, I don't know if that's normal. Uh, It could be, but that seems like a lot to me. But there's 126 witnesses. And what is the purpose of each witness? It is to testify to the truth. But their purpose is more than that. The purpose of witnesses is not to just testify about the truth, but then to convince the jury of the truth. That is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a witness on the witness stand of eternal truth. He was there to testify that Jesus is the truth, that Jesus is the light, but also to convince those who heard him to believe in Jesus as such. But who is John the Baptist not? Notice verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So, so John is not the light, right? That's what it says. And what I want to say 21 centuries later after this was written, I want to say, um, duh, because of course John the Baptist is not the light. So then the question we have to answer is why? Why is verse 8 even there? Because to me, in the 21st century, it seems obvious that John the Baptist was not the light and the truth to the world. I believe the reason verse 8 here is for two reasons. Number one is to introduce who John the Baptist is, but it is also... For another reason entirely, I believe John the author understands the tendency of human beings. John the author understands our desire to elevate things that are not God to inappropriate heights. I believe he understands his audience that they are trying to understand who this guy they've heard of named John the Baptist. Is he deity or is he just human? And John the author clarifies right from the beginning of his gospel that John the Baptist is not something to be elevated, not something to be worshipped. He's just a man sent from God. But if you think about it, we all have the tendency to do this, to take something that is tangible, controllable, something that we understand, and elevate it as more important or just as important as God. 
Let's just uh, be real for just a second. We love idols. I mean, what is one of the most popular TV shows in the last 20 years? Something called what? American Idol, right? What are they looking for? They're looking for the next idol of America to be worshipped. But in reality, that singer is just a human being. And think about John chapter 1 so far, verses 1 through 5 is a theological treatise on the identity of Christ. And now in verse 6, the author slams on his brakes to make sure his audience does not elevate John the Baptist to deity or to inappropriate heights, to be worshipped or to be revealed more than he should. You know, verse 6 through 8 reveals to me the human condition. Because as I've mentioned already, you and I love idols. We love something shiny and charismatic to pursue or to trust more than Jesus. As Christians even. As Christians, we have idols of personality. You know, I can imagine Chuck Swindoll, Dave Ramsey, right? We all Christians love Dave Ramsey, right? We, Billy Graham, we love him. But we even worship or elevate even secular ones like Bob Barker or Jay Leno or Johnny Carson. People under 35 are wondering who Johnny Carson is. Okay. As mentioned earlier, as Christians, we sometimes even create idols out of church. We elevate church to an inappropriate status. There's a church in town or that has satellites there's a very big church and i'm just waiting for the day that they start passing around kool-aid as christians we sometimes elevate extraneous doctrines you know as christians we really like to try to quantify everything plan everything basically bound God's sovereignty within the bounds of my finite mind. And then what we do is we take these extraneous doctrines and then we basically beat other people up over it. And we, But what does the scripture say? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1-3 through 3, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clingy cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. But let's just take it a step further, and let me just totally uh, tread on thin ice and on toes this morning. Let's just, okay. As Christians, especially as conservative, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching Christians, you know what else we elevate as something, as an idol? This. Oftentimes, we can make even the Bible an idol. Friends, we do not worship the Bible. We worship the God who wrote the Bible. I hope that we never forget that, that we do not pursue a relationship with the Bible, but rather we pursue a relationship with God through the Bible. We seek to obey God in to obey God according to what he has written down. But this is not our pursuit. Christ is our pursuit. My first point today is to pursue not shiny idols. What I mean by that is to do not elevate any man or objects of worship into onto the throne of your life. Instead of pursuing John the Baptist as deity, what should they do instead? They should realize that John the Baptist, in a sense, is something that 
kind of merely glows in the dark. John the Baptist is just a human being sent by God for a particular mission. So instead of pursuing him as light, as truth, what should they rather pursue? They should rather pursue verses 9 through 13. If you to outline verses 9 through 13, verse 9 describes the reason for the light's coming. Verses 10 through 11 describes... Uh, describe the world's reaction to his coming, and verses 12 through 13 describe our needed response to his coming. Notice verse 9. There was the true light, which was different than John the Baptist, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. Notice that phrase, enlightens every man. We'll talk about what that means here in just a second. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Yet he came to his own, and those who were his own did not then receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right, circle that word right, we'll talk about it, he gave the right to them to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Point number one is to pursue not shiny idols. Rather, point number two is to pursue Christ above all. Why did the light, why did Jesus come into the world? Verse 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. The reason Jesus came into the world, into darkness, into the world of sin, the reason he came here is to enlighten every man as to his truth, as to his light, as to the gospel. Of course, though, we know he came for more than that. We know that he came as a payment of sin. We know that he came to glorify the Father, to reveal the Father, and more. But just in verse 9, Jesus came to enlighten every man to the light and the truth of the gospel. But I want you to notice that last little phrase in verse verse 9. It says, the true light which enlightens every man. That word enlightens is very interesting in the original language. What we cannot see in English is that John, the author, is doing a play on words. The root word for the word enlightens in Greek is the same Greek word for light, which is phos. And the Greek verb for enlightens is a present tense Greek verb, giving the idea of continuing action. Now, if I just lost you for the last 20 seconds, then hop back on the train. I'll tell you what I mean by all that. Verse 9 literally reads something like this. There was the true light which coming into the world gives light continually to all men. The moment Jesus took on flesh, he shined the light of the gospel to all men. In other words, what? That no one is excluded from the gospel. The gospel is for all men. What do I mean by the gospel? The gospel is simply this, that you and I live in darkness. You and I are sinners, that we rebel against God, and that God saw our condition. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the payment for our sin that I could not pay, and then if I believe in him, that I would be saved. That's the gospel. But when I see that last little phrase in verse 9, that it enlightens every man, it tells me that the gospel is not exclusive to good people or to your background or to your race, but that every man that has ever lived has the opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ as his Savior or her Savior. Jesus took his light of hope and truth and showed it 
to every person that has ever lived, and we'll talk more about that later, maybe. The reason for Jesus' coming is, coming is in verse 9, and then notice the world's reaction. You know, we would expect somebody who is God to not have the reception that he was given. But in verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Jesus was the creator, and he was the light, he was the truth, but then what was the world's reaction to him? And the world did not know him. And he came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. When Jesus came as the light, as the truth, as the gospel, as the hope to the darkness of the world, what was our reaction to him? Number one, our reaction was that the world did not know him. That's what it says. Why didn't the world know him? It's because he is light and we are living in darkness. The world, we sinful people, did not receive him because of the sin which tarnishes our soul. What does it say in Romans chapter 1? I'll give you a brief overview. As human beings, our hearts are impure, our minds are depraved, and our souls are worthy of death. And our sin blinds us to the truth of Jesus Christ. So we did not know him, but then what was the reaction of the world? Secondly, it says this, and he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. I take that phrase, his own, there's a lot of discussion on what that means. Does that mean just Jews, or does that mean the whole world and Jews and Gentiles? I take his own to mean, verse 11, I take it to mean everyone, all people. Why do I say that? Because his own, he created all people, his own are all, because he created all. Jesus shines the light of the gospel to all people in, what does it say, we did not receive him. In other words, what? We rejected Jesus Christ. Why? Because we live in darkness. We prefer the idols of the world. We often run from the light, even as Christians, because we prefer idols, we prefer our own agendas, we prefer our own selfishness. We oftentimes reject Jesus Christ, even as Christians, in every area of our life, because, quite frankly, we prefer to do it a different way. I guess my question for you right now is, what are you pursuing? What is an idol that you have on the throne of your life other than Jesus Christ? What are you pursuing as more important than him? You know, as I read John chapter 1 verses 1 through 13, I can't help but think about God's perspective. Here he is, Jesus Christ, who is the hope and hope of the world. He created all things. He then steps down into the realm of time. He takes on flesh and all of our human limitations of getting tired and all that. And then what do we do to him? We say, you know, thank you for, thank you for providing me the gospel. Thank you for creating me. Thank you for giving hope to me beyond, beyond eternal death. And oh, by the way, I don't really want you. I just would rather reject you for my own idols and for my own devices. Now, I'll just say it this way. It is good that I am not God, okay? Because if I was sitting, in, sitting there in the Garden of Eden and I would have seen Adam eat the fruit, I would have probably flicked him and he would have 
vaporized, okay? I, <laughs> here is God. He is perfect. He is holy. He has created us holy and in His image. And we decided in the Garden of Eden to say, oh, you know, I'd rather sin than obey you. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to send your Son, Jesus Christ, as the light, as the hope of the world. And then I'm not going to understand who you are, and then I'm going to reject you outright. I find it amazing, not only God's patience, but God's love, that Jesus still came as a true light, knowing that we would reject him, knowing that we would prefer the darkness of the world and idols. In, in response to Jesus' arrival, we saw that light, we did not know it, and then we rejected it. Verse 9 describes the reason for the light's coming. Verses 10 through 11 describe the world's reaction to him. But then notice in verses 12 through 13, in these two verses, we have beauty and we have magnificence and we have the provision of God for all those who believe and receive him. Verse 12, for as many as received him, the light, to them, he gave them the right to become children of God. Each of those who believe in his name who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Instead of not knowing him, instead of rejecting him, what should we do instead? What does it say to those who receive him? How do we receive Jesus Christ? By faith. By believing in Him, we receive the light, we receive the gospel, not by something that we do, not by being a quote-unquote good person, not by the certain way we grew up. We receive the light by faith. That's what the scripture says. But then notice what happens to you if you receive Him by faith. Notice what happens in verse 12. But as many as received Him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of God, but of God himself. When we receive Jesus by faith, we are given two things. Number one, we are given a change in privilege. To those who believe him are given the right to become children of God. That word right in English, eh, it's pretty good, but it's just... The word in the original language, it's, I think it's the word exousia off the top of my mind, but that word that, it kind of means right, but it means also privilege or freedom or the authority. So catch this, when we receive Jesus by faith, we are given the privilege to become his child. But then when I take Romans chapter 8 in, I filter that in. We are not just a stepchild, we are not just an outcast, but that we are what? That we are co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God, and that we inherit through him every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're not just, oh, that child, but we are God's full child by faith. When you receive Jesus by faith, we have a change in privilege but also we have a change in identity. Notice it says that you are born of God. We'll talk more about that. What does it mean to be born again or born of God, born of God in John chapter 3? But as I understand it here, that our identity has completely and totally changed from somebody who walks in the midst of the darkness of the world to somebody who is a child of God who now has the permanent indwelling of light in their lives. When you believe in Jesus Christ, your identity is no longer bound by human limitations. 
but your identity is bound only by God's infinite love. When you receive Jesus by faith, you are given the privilege to be his child and to change your identity from darkness into light. There is so much more that we could talk about in this passage um, than even I have time to discuss. But for what time I have left, I would just like to take my preacher cap off for just a second and just talk. Wherever you are, however you, you may be listening to, my question is quite simple. What are you pursuing? Both Christians and non-Christians alike, the question is this. What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing further life in darkness? Or are you pursuing the light and the redemption of Jesus Christ? Are you pursuing becoming like him or are you moving away from him? If you do not know Jesus Christ, if you've never believed in him, then you really, if you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then you are really hopeless to know him. Today I'll just say it this way, that you have been shown the truth, you've been shown the light, Jesus has revealed it to you, that Jesus is the light of the world, all who follow and believe in him shall not perish but have the light of life. And the question is, is that when you're confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, the question really is this. Do you prefer darkness or do you prefer truth and light? Do you prefer your old way of doing things or do you prefer to understand and to receive him by faith? Jesus offers to you a gift by faith that you do not have to earn. But what's amazing about that idea, not even idea, but that truth, is that not only do you experience earthly life, aliveness, and eternal aliveness, but then your identity and your purpose and your privilege completely changes as well. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, then receive him by faith. And to those who have received Jesus Christ, to those who believe in him, then really my application for you is really twofold. Number one is a reminder. And then number two is a warning. Application number one is really a reminder to us all of God. Of his love, of his plan, of his mercy, of his greatness, of his compassion, of his mercy, of his magnificence. Let me just read. I just want to read this to you. It's this passage we have been meditating on. If this doesn't give you goosebumps, then I don't know what will. Verse 9. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightened every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and despite it, they did not receive him. But even despite their rejection of the Christ of the light, as many as would believe in him, to them he gave them the privilege to not just be eternally saved, to not just have a change in earthly, earthly purpose and aliveness, but instead he elevated them to a child of God who were born of God. A complete identity change. What I hope that this passage does to Christians is that it reminds you of the grace and the love and the magnificence and the forgiveness of God. Allow me to read a passage that describes God's forgiveness and his love and his mercy and his grace. This is Psalm 103. God has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Amen. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards those who fear him. 
As far as the east is from the west, so far he, as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on all those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he knows that we are but dust. It is amazing to me that despite our rejection of the Savior, despite our desire to pursue idols, despite our desire to pursue things that merely glow in the dark, that God would still display his love and his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. And then my second application today is more of a warning to Christians. That we do not worship the Johns of the world, we do not worship anything else but Jesus Christ and God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God. My warning to you is let us not put the Johns of the world on the thrones of our lives. As Christians, it is easy to see something that is shiny, charismatic, flashy, something that is even urgent, and to take Jesus off as priority and to set him aside. It is easy to attempt to satisfy our needs in any well other than Jesus Christ, in any well that promises satisfaction and a quenching of our needs. But Jesus truly is the only quencher of our souls. It is easy to see people in the world, to see their success, their luck, their possessions, their big house, their nice car, and it's easy to covet what they have, and then slowly but surely we take our idols of covetousness, of worldly desires, of worldly possessions, and we slowly place it on the throne of our lives instead of Jesus Christ. It is tempting to look for the darkness for answers to life's greatest questions, to seek a self-help book, or to f- find the latest Bowflex machine, or to find the latest diet craze, okay, or to find... Whatever. It's so easy for us to look for the darkness for answers, but truly speaking, Jesus is the light, and in him are answers in life. What are you pursuing was my original question. Are you pursuing Christ-likeness or anything else? Are you pursuing the light or are you pursuing darkness? Are you pursuing to become more like Jesus Christ or to follow something else? Friends, let us not run from the light, but let us run toward the light. Let us place Jesus on the throne. Let us rid ourselves of idols, of anything that we place as more important than Jesus, and let us put Jesus in his proper place, because only when Jesus is on the throne, only when we pursue and receive him on a daily basis, Only then will we understand the light, and only then will we serve him with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today, and thank you for those tuning in. I look forward to next week that we can actually meet together in person. Lord, I just pray your continued protection of all people tuning into this and beyond. Lord, grant uh, us as leaders of Calvary just wisdom. Uh, Grant us discernment as to your will. Lord, I just uh, thank you for the faithfulness of the people at Calvary. Thank you for those that have put this service together. And thanks to those who have helped in the past. They have worked so tirelessly and so long. I thank you for each of them. I thank you also for the staff. Lord, I just uh, that work here so diligently. Thank you for the leaders. Lord, just be with us. I pray that we would examine our lives, 
that we would examine anything that we pursue other than you as priority. Lord, I just uh, I lift all this up to you, and I uh, thank you for the gospel. I thank you for Jesus Christ and the life that he gives to us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.